Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room with me, Jen Rubin, where every Wednesday I go behind the scenes of the political world with some of the best and the brightest in the business. We come into your living room and we have a chat and you get to listen in. This week, I'm sitting down with one of my close political friends and often confidants. He is the co-founder and executive vice president for public affairs at The Third Way, which is a moderate Democratic think tank. Matt Bennett, he, as he will acknowledge, is the infamous staffer who put Michael Dukakis in that tank. Um, But he treats that episode with such aplomb and modesty and good humor that I don't mind pulling his leg about it. And besides, how many worse episodes have we seen in our politics since then? So without further ado, I'll welcome Matt Bennett. Welcome to the show, Matt Bennett. Nice to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I think the first time we ever met in person was in a fast casual restaurant right around Farragut Square in D.C. It was just after the 2016 election. We were still in that weird space where we couldn't believe that Donald Trump had won. And I thought to myself, I don't know enough Democrats to be able to talk to the people who I now am at least psychologically, politically aligned with. So everyone had nice things to say about Matt Bennett. So we meet, and I think you had one of your people with you. We had a a lovely little chat, and I left thinking to myself, maybe I've been a moderate Democrat all these years. And we generally agree on most, not everything, but most things. So Pretty much. And we are delighted to have you more formally join our little band. Yes. Well, you know, it's a never dull moment. I think uh, those of us who are on the other side can lead, a, lend a little helping hand sometimes to Democrats who have an incredible ability to beat themselves up and talk themselves out of victory. So, Oh, it's our best skill. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk um, a bit about um, Red Blue America, not in the terms of the action that goes on in Washington, but how those states are actually governed. Third Way did an incredibly important study on homicide rates between states run by Republicans and states run by Democrats. Can you tell us a little bit about what that showed? Yeah. Obviously, the reason that we did this uh, is that crime became a very significant issue uh, first in 2020 when after in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the activism around that, uh, some on the far left started talking about defunding the police. And by the time we got to the 2020 election, that became a very politically toxic slogan that the Republicans were using against Democrats. And then they reprised that attack in 2022. So uh, this has been going on for a while. Uh, crime hadn't been an issue in politics since really the early 90s, and it came roaring back. So we took a look at the data to find out whether what the Republicans were saying about Democrats was true. And what we found is that it is the exact opposite. In fact, what you find when you look at the worst crime, which is homicide or one of the worst crimes, um, homicide rates in states governed by Republicans uh, or in red states that vote for Republicans for president are much higher per capita than they are in blue states. And that is true even when you take away the crime rates of the big cities in those states, like if you take Jackson, Mississippi out of the mix, Mississippi still has a higher crime rate per capita than New York and California. So we found that pretty striking. 
Now, those of us who have looked at all sorts of indicators in Red America, education, child poverty, hunger, all kinds of statistics, um, are not terribly surprised by this fact. But have you been able to pinpoint why it is? Is it gun laws? Is it some of the other economic factors, which tend to be worse in those red states? Do we know? We don't know. It's certainly a range of things. There is no question that guns are a huge part of this. After all, what we're looking at is homicides, and most homicides in America are committed with guns. And the states that we're looking at tend to have dramatically looser gun laws than the states uh, governed by Democrats. And it is just much, much easier to get your hands on a gun if you live in these states than if you live in blue states. So Guns definitely are a factor. Uh, But I think to your point, there's a range of other things. Not least is funding for the police. This is the biggest irony of all, which is police are a function of government. And when you live in a state in, say, the Deep South or in a a super right-wing state uh, that basically wants to shrink government, they're shrinking everything, including law enforcement. And so there's just less policing going on in red states than there are in blue states. And now apparently it's de rigueur for Republicans to say defund the FBI. So we've now come completely full circle. Let's talk a little bit about the gun laws. It's not like we don't have evidence that these things work. Um, Put on your old hat. You used to be uh, one of the primary figures in every town uh, and the gun safety movement. Tell us a little bit about the Connecticut example. Um, it used to have relatively lax gun laws, and then it changed. So what right. happened? And just to clarify, I was with a group called Americans for Gun Safety, which was an ally of every town. But, uh, but yeah, I did that for four years, and I've been doing guns for a while. I'm on the board of Sandy Hook Promise that has been very, very involved, uh, or was very involved in changing the gun laws of Connecticut, obviously after the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. And what we find is that states that have tougher gun laws, and remember, when we say tough, it's not that tough. I mean, in America, in the uh, aftermath of the Heller decision and then the, the New York case, the Supreme Court has made very clear that they recognize the Second Amendment right to own a gun. We can disagree with their legal reasoning or with their historical analysis. It doesn't matter if we disagree with them. They have made clear there is a Second Amendment right to own a gun. So if you live in Connecticut or you live in Alabama, you have that right. However, um, under the reasoning, particularly of the Heller decision written by Justice Scalia, um, he made clear that all rights come with responsibilities. And Um, And there are laws that define what it means to be a responsible gun owner, as there are laws about what it means to be responsible when it comes to speech, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Um, So Connecticut has, uh, as have many blue states, come to define the law as strictly as they can within the contours of the Second Amendment. So it is very difficult to buy a gun if you're under 21. Uh, It is... uh, much easier for law enforcement to remove guns from the homes of people who are a threat to themselves or to others. Uh, There are rules around background checks that don't exist in some states. All of those things make an enormous difference in gun crime. And one of the big problems we found is that loose states with loose gun laws contribute to gun crime in states with tough gun laws because guns travel the way drugs do in interstate commerce. 
I've heard um, Mayor Bloomberg, um, other New Yorkers say that they get an incredible number of guns in New York from Alabama in particular. Um, And, you know, I I do wonder how effective can a state be if the states all around you are letting anybody and everybody own a gun, have concealed carry, you know, anyone can walk around with an AR-15. What's the uh, success or the likelihood that states that are responsible can make progress if their neighbors aren't? Yeah, that that stat about Alabama sending guns into New York actually comes from uh, my colleague Jim Kessler when he worked for Chuck Schumer back in the 1990s. Uh, He wrote a report for Schumer called the Iron Pipeline, which became the kind of Bible about gun trafficking in America. And what happens with guns, unlike with illegal drugs, is that guns start as a legal product. Of course, they are they're made by manufacturers, they're sold to wholesalers who sell them to retailers who sell them to consumers. And that's all, those are all, for the most part, legal transactions. There can be uh, exceptions, of course, but for the most part, they're legal. And then they move into a gray market and then sometimes into a black market where they are sold to people who should not or uh, cannot possess guns legally. And um, those gun traffickers are the real cause of problems in states like Pennsylvania and New York uh, and Maryland, uh, where they've got tough gun laws, but they are either bordered by or in a big interstate trafficking, you know, corridor like I-95 with states that don't. And so the the answer to your question is, um, it is very difficult to control for that problem. And we're never, there's 400 million guns in private hands. We're not getting those back, even if the Second Amendment, you know, just, uh, law was reversed tomorrow. However, what we have found is that tough state gun laws do have impact on all kinds of things, from garden variety gun crime to suicide, uh, which is an enormous gun problem, to accidental shootings, uh, and to mass murders. And uh, so we think it's vitally important that states take these actions, even if they can't stop all gun crime. It is interesting that Republicans whose favorite excuse for this is mental health also don't want to spend money on mental health programs, but we'll accept that as part of the uh, never-ending hypocrisy of the right. We do, and we are going to have, I think, some case studies. There were a series of horrible, horrible shootings in Michigan. Michigan now, a blue state once again, blue state governor, blue uh, legislature, passed some reasonably tough gun laws. They didn't outlaw semi-automatic weapons, but they passed universal background checks and some other tougher requirements. You look at Texas, which has had a series also of horrible school shootings, and they're making it easier and easier to get guns. Are we going to see a further divergence, you think, between blue states and red states if this keeps up? Oh, there's just no doubt about it. I mean, just take a look at one type of gun crime, which is relatively recent, and that is road rage gun crime. Um, Road rage can lead to violence of all kinds. People can use their cars violently. They can get out and use their fists or, or other weapons they have in their car. But the worst kind of violence involving road rage involves guns. And if you're in a state like Texas where you have concealed carry or a state with open carry and your gun is sitting there or strapped to you, the likelihood that that, that gun is going to get involved in a violent incident is massively higher than if you're in a state that does not have those kinds of concealed carry laws. And so there is no question that you're going to see 
far more incidents of gun violence in states with loose laws than in states with tough laws. And none of this is a secret. It's not like these studies are locked up in a vault someplace. We all know what the facts are. It's just that Republicans don't want it. They don't want it pass these laws because they've created this gun cult that frankly takes precedent over little kids. It sounds terrible to say that, but I don't have another explanation other than that. Well, that's right. And the politics of guns were kind of poured into amber in 1994, because what happened then was uh, Clinton and the Democrats had passed the Brady Act in 93, and then the uh, crime bill in 1994 uh, that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer wrote. Uh, and that included the assault weapons ban, which was a 10-year ban that expired in 2004. Uh, in 1994, of course, Democrats lost control of the House for the first time in 30-plus years. And um, lots and lots of political observers chalked that up to the gun provisions, particularly the assault weapons ban and the power of the NRA. And since that moment in 1994, which is almost 30 years ago, People in politics have decided that the gun, that the politics of guns are, are bad for Democrats and good for Republicans, and that Republicans have decided the only way they can survive is to be absolutists on gun rights. I think that that is wrong. I think that has profoundly changed. I think they're misreading the politics of guns in an era when 350,000 people have been in a school including universities, but been in a school where there's an active shooter, uh, where virtually every child goes through active shooter drills in schools. I think the revulsion and the, and the, the exhaustion with, with not only mass shootings, but with everyday crime involving guns um, has caught Republicans by surprise. And I think that they're going to find that the politics of guns have shifted, but they haven't shifted yet. At least they haven't made, it hasn't made its way to Republicans in Congress. Well, we're going to test that proposition in 2024. My own view is that Dobbs, the abortion decision, has fundamentally changed politics. I hope the gun issue is changing as well. But there is a way in which Donald Trump slithers back into the Oval Office um, and the MAGA crowd triumphs. And it's not simply by running against Joe Biden, who incidentally is a darn good president, has passed an impressive array of legislation, presided over an economic recovery. It's if a third party group decides to get into the mix with a game plan to drain votes from Joe Biden. And lo and behold, there is a group called No Labels. Tell us what they're doing, what they're up to, and why they seem to be working to Donald Trump's favor. Well, No Labels was founded about 10 years ago by a uh, Democratic or former Democratic fundraiser named Nancy Jacobson. Uh, and for the first, uh, I guess it was more than 10 years ago, probably closer to 13. And for their first uh, many years, they were involved in seeking bipartisan solutions to problems. And look, Third Way is a center-left organization. We worked uh, with them on some things. We didn't always agree, but for the most part, we thought what they did was helpful. They created uh, what is called the Problem Solvers Caucus, a group of both Democrats and Republicans in the House who have agreed to work together to try to solve problems. Uh, hasn't produced tremendous results yet, but, um, but certainly a worthy undertaking. And the people involved in that, certainly on the Democratic side that we know well, uh, are really good members and, and, um, and good, you know, moderate members. 
However, uh, we were surprised to learn last year that No Labels has decided to go in a dramatically different direction now and attempt to put a third-party candidate on the ballot in all 50 states because they have decided, apparently, that a rematch between Biden and Trump is just unacceptable. Um, We can discuss why they think it's unacceptable. To your point, our view is that Biden is an extraordinarily effective and very bipartisan, moderate uh, Democrat. But that is the decision they apparently have arrived at. And they've got a lot of money and they are aggressively seeking ballot access in many states. They can, they can do this in 35 states before they even have somebody named as a candidate. And they're doing it uh, fast and, and very uh, effectively. They're already on the ballot in six states, including Arizona, uh, which is, of course, one of the key swing states in this presidential. So they're going after it hard. Let me just uh, stop and, you right yeah. there because we don't want to skip past this really intellectual abomination. They posit that it would be equally bad for us to reelect Joe Biden and, or to reelect the guy who tried to overthrow the government, who's facing multiple indictments, who's clearly not all there mentally, who is out for political revenge and openly talking now about firing everyone who's prosecuting him. They say those two things are equal. How does any rational person reach that result? Or do they not believe it and this whole thing is just a scam? Well, I'm not going to opine on their intentions. All I can tell you is what they've been saying and and what we think the outcome would be. Uh, What they claim is they don't think that there's moral equivalency between Trump and Biden. Uh, They've been a a little mixed view on that. Um, The founder, Nancy Jacobson, has kind of said there was moral equivalency. Others, like Joe Lieberman, who's one of their uh, co-chairs, has said that there isn't. But they have been clear that they don't think Biden versus Trump is an appropriate rematch, that that doesn't offer people enough options. They have not said precisely why. I mean, if they're counting up uh, bipartisan achievements, Joe Biden is in the Hall of Fame of bipartisan achievements as a president. I mean, I'm not sure any president has had as many as he has had. Uh, And he has governed as a moderate, and he's a man of abiding decency and faith. And so it clearly is something else that they're seeking. Uh, They may be concerned about his age. They may be looking at polls and deciding that people just don't like him enough. It's not 100% clear why they think he's so unacceptable. But they have said that they don't think a Biden-Trump rematch is good enough for American voters. And they point to a bunch of polls where when you ask someone, would you like a third option, people say yes, but it's kind of like, would you like a unicorn and a free you know, pony? And people say yes. It, it, that, that's not really a hard question to answer. And people have been answering yes for oh, decades. Yes. Exactly. And right. the plain truth is it's virtually impossible for a third party candidate to win. No one has come close. Probably the closest um, in our lifetime was George Wallace, and he didn't come all that close. So- How do they think they're going to pull this off? And who do they think they're really drawing from? Do they think that there are MAGA people out there that are dying to vote for a moderate Democrat or a Rockefeller Republican? I think that the fundamental error that they're making in their analysis is they're 
the way that they're thinking about independent voters. What they say is that there's a plurality of voters who, who identifies independence, that that has gone up radically in recent years. That's not true, incidentally. It's only gone up uh, marginally in the last few years. Um, and that, therefore, there's this giant well of voters that would be open to voting for a third party. But that is simply a that is a basic misreading of politics, because of that, you know, whatever it is, say 39 percent of the electorate that identifies as independent or even if it's 49 percent, only about seven percent of the electorate is actually a swing voter, which is to say they might vote for a Democrat or a Republican. They will look at them both with genuine equal opportunity. Most of the independents out there are what we call leaners. They are they're effectively Democrats or Republicans, no matter how they've registered or what they tell pollsters. So they're overwhelmingly likely to vote for the party that they always vote for, which means that there is a very, very small slice of the electorate that is open to voting for a third party. However, so that slice of the electorate is massively too small. I mean, that's a mixed metaphor, but that slice of the electorate is far too small uh, to even think about winning an election or winning even in a single state, but it is large enough to affect the outcome of the election. That's what we're so worried about. So when you look at Biden's victory in 2020, uh, you add it all up and it was what something like 78,000 votes in a few states. So of those 7%, there would be enough, for example, that would gobble up those votes that Biden desperately needed to win those states. And we would wind up with not third party, no labels guy. We'd wind up with Donald Trump. That is exactly right. And there's a whole bunch of evidence that that is true. So just keep in mind, uh, Biden won in 2020 by 43,000 votes across Arizona, Georgia and Wisconsin. Uh, Those states were decided by Arizona by 0.3 percent, Georgia by 0.2 percent, Uh, Wisconsin by 0.6%. So these are incredibly closely divided electorates. The other thing to keep in mind is that the reason that Biden was able to win in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, the blue wall states that Hillary lost in 2016, was entirely because the difference between 16 and 20 is that this time there was no third party on the ballot. In 2016, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, uh, running on the Libertarian Party and I think maybe the Green Party or some uh, you know, lefty party, between them constituted a relatively credible third option. And people uh, in that 7% who didn't like either Hillary or Trump uh, used that option. Um, and clearly that was the difference because if you look at Trump's share of the vote in those three states, he won those three states in 2016. He lost them in 2020, but his share of the vote went up in all three states. And the reason is that um, he got more of the people who had voted for Stein and Johnson last time, but Biden benefited even more. He got a larger share than Trump got and therefore was able to outperform Hillary. If you give those people an opportunity to to peel away and to vote for a third party, they will take it. And we know that from one other data point, which is what we call the double haters. These are the people that don't, the telepolsters that don't like either Trump or Biden. Uh, There's a lot of them. uh, And 
uh, last time there were about 15% of the electorate. It's probably more now. The Wall Street Journal just did a poll that showed that um, if you tell those people, we know you don't like either candidate, but you got to choose one because they're the only two on the ballot. Biden wins that share of the electorate by 39 points. So he dominates among the people who would exercise the option uh, to to vote for a third party. Uh, If they don't have that option, they'll vote for Biden. And I think we just saw also a focus group, New York Times ran, that essentially said the same thing. And that's because, whether because of the media or because people are grouchy, there is a segment of the population that plainly is smart enough to know that Trump is a danger, but is kind of down on Biden for whatever reasons. He's too old. He's not dynamic. He's a poor speaker, whatever it is. But when pressed, those people almost always come back to Biden. And that was true in the focus group and apparently true in this poll that you're indicating. It does, though, remind me of another episode in your political past um, when we were not on the same side, and that was Florida. Um, We had a third party there. And for those of our young voters who weren't uh, savvy enough around, what happened in Florida in 2000? So, of course, uh, when Gore was running against George W. Bush in 2000, the election came down to Florida. It was essentially tied, and the winner of the Florida uh, electoral votes was going to be the president. Uh, and the Florida vote was incredibly, incredibly close. Gore, uh, after many recounts and legal action, Gore ended up losing in the state by 537 votes. Not 537,000, 537. Meanwhile, Ralph Nader was a third party candidate on the ballot. There was another one also, Pat Buchanan, but Nader got 97,000 votes in Florida. Actually, more than that almost 98,000. And uh, so there is simply no doubt, none whatsoever, that Al Gore would have been president if if Nader had not been on the ballot. And um, that is what tends to happen, is that the third-party candidates uh, who are not complete gadflies like Kanye West was last time, but if if they have any seriousness about them at all, they can have an impact on the outcome but they can't come close to winning. And that is what we're so worried about with no labels this time. For those of us who suspect either um, inadvertently or intentionally that this is a help Trump movement, there was some pretty powerful evidence, as they say, they said the quiet part out loud when they attacked another Democrat. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and what that tells you about their willingness to frankly go after Democrats when there's no equal venom that's directed against Republicans. Yeah, this was quite striking. So Third Way and others, we've been kind of leading an effort to um, sound the alarm about this among uh, Democrats and people in politics and elected officials. And a couple of outlets, including the New York Times, have been writing about this, Washington Post as well. And uh, several of the problem solvers, those um, folks that I mentioned earlier, people aligned with that no labels, the group that no labels founded, have uh, gone on the record. The first one actually was the uh, Democratic co-chair of the problem solvers in the Washington Post uh, last month. And uh, Josh Gottheimer said that he didn't support this third party effort. And then the Times uh, got quotes from a bunch of others, including 
uh, Congressman Brad Schneider, all of whom said, this isn't a bad idea. This is, we're really worried this is going to reelect Trump. They kind of were uh, saying a lot of the same things you and I are saying. Schneider, after he went on the record, found that in his district, No Labels was emailing and texting his constituents, attacking him and asking them, doing the classic political attack thing, call Brad Schneider and tell him you want a third option. And um, so they were attacking their closest allies in Congress, which uh, is a strategy, I suppose, uh, but, it, but a very shocking one. And it really upset the people, uh, the Democratic problem solvers, because, you know, an attack on one is kind of an attack on all of them. And it, to your point, it kind of gives away the game. I'm, they're not out there attacking Republicans. They're attacking Democrats because they know Republicans have been mostly silent about this, or to some extent they've been supportive of it, in part because uh, they win either way. Either, you know, somehow uh, 17 lightning bolts strike at once and they win the election, which is not going to happen, or uh, they help the Republican nominee win. Uh, win win for them, but not for Democrats. And it is telling that there are not so many of the elected officials, but former Republican lawmakers have been saying, oh, this is a great idea. We like this idea. So I think the um, the cat is out of the bag. But what can listeners do? What's the way to prevent this from happening? I look at this and I said, oh, my gosh, these people have a ton of money. They've either found some Republican donors or they've completely bamboozled um, Democratic or independent donors. And they're really going to raise the money. How do you stop this or how do you slow it down or um, remove this risk that they're going to put Donald Trump back in the White House? Well, just keep in mind one thing. It's a free country. And so we can't actually stop it. If they're bound and determined to go forward with this, they can, uh, because, you know, we live in a democracy. And if they want to, if they have the resources to gain ballot access, and mostly that's about the money to hire firms to gather signatures, which they're doing, and, and by all accounts, the signatures they're gathering are, are real, uh, they will be on the ballot. The, but they have said many times that they hope they don't have to be. Uh, this is part of the slightly incoherent part of their message, which is they're not clear about what decision point they're going to reach about whether to go forward or not. But certainly for the next eight or 10 months, they could pull the plug whenever they want. And so um, I would hope that listeners would contact their members of Congress or if they have connections to no labels, contact them directly and tell them that they think this is a very bad idea, that what they're doing could reelect Trump and that would be catastrophic. Um, so uh, we are hoping they will exercise what they call their off-ramps, that they will choose not to do this. Uh, but so far, there's no evidence of them uh, doing it. It's full speed ahead. They have planned a convention, a nominating convention in Dallas uh, on April 13th of next year. And after that convention, when they have a nominee for president, uh, it will be impossible for them to pull the plug. The nominee presumably could, but they can't because at that point it'll be a campaign that they don't control. So we really need them to, uh, to, to shut this down before they get to Dallas. You kind of wonder what that decision point would be. Would it be, I don't know, passage of a bipartisan infrastructure bill? Would it be passage of a bipartisan debt reduction bill? Would it be the PACT Act? You can go through the list and you kind of wonder what is it that they're looking for? I mean, 
Are they looking for one of their members to be in the cabinet? Is it that simple? Uh, Are they looking for a pat on the back? Because every sign of, as you said, a bipartisanship that is remotely possible, that has been remotely possible in the last couple of years, has passed. So what would convince them otherwise? It's a mystery. Uh, (laughs) They are um, all over the place on this question. Some of them say, look, you know, Biden's not so bad, but he's pretty old. And oh, my God, what about Kamala Harris? And uh, so they've been kind of elliptical about that. Others of them have been much clearer that they actually don't like Biden. Um, Joe Cunningham, a one-term House Democratic member um, who lost in 2020 from South Carolina, is now the national director of No Labels, uh, presumably a paid staff member. And he has now had two uh, op-eds published in the Charleston paper talking about this. And in the first one, he said that the Democrats nominating Joe Biden would be a moral failure. And he went on to say that Biden and the Democrats have done nothing for moderate voters, which, to your point, is uh, a curious analysis of the last two years. And we simply don't know what more they think Joe Biden could do to prove that he's a moderate other than uh, beating Bernie Sanders in the primary, uh, running and governing as a moderate, uh, being super clear about wanting to govern as a moderate in all of his rhetoric, and then uh, signing into law six or seven gigantic bipartisan pieces of legislation. And you kind of wonder what Joe Cunningham thinks the people of South Carolina who voted for him would think. Um, Do they think that Joe Biden has delivered nothing? Those were the very people that he was soliciting for votes on a lot of the same things that Joe Biden ran on and a lot of the kind of things that he won. So it does seem awfully peculiar, I'll say that. Speaking of 2024, there seems to be this never-ending drumbeat of underestimation of knocking Joe Biden. I write about this all the time because it drives me insane, that the press, for whatever liberal intuitions they may have, seems to have made it their business to disregard any sign of progress. Well, yes, inflation has come down, but it's still too high. Oh, yes, we've made lots and lots of jobs, but there's someone who's unemployed. Oh, yes, we've made passed all these bills, but look what didn't get passed. What is it? Is this just their grouchiness? Is this some effort to get Republicans to start watching CNN? What gives? It doesn't seem tethered to reality. I do think that there is... Uh, a reaction on the part of the mainstream media to the constant attack they've been under in the Trump era, uh, being called fake news, uh, does take a toll. And I think they have overreacted. It's pretty clear at CNN, for example, that they've overreacted. I mean, they gave Trump a forum to spout his lies. They have uh, been you know, aggressive about trying to put more MAGA voices on their air. And I think that includes being skeptical about Biden where skepticism isn't merited. And so I I think it's all of those things. Moreover, to your point, Joe Biden is the most underestimated politician in modern American history. I mean, the guy got elected to the Senate before he was constitutionally eligible to serve. He was 29. Um, He became eligible before his swearing in. Uh, 
He served all of those years in the Senate. He became vice president of the United States. He then ran in a race no one at all, with the exception of us and a few others, thought he could win in, against Bernie Sanders in a, in a field of 20. He, he just annihilated Bernie Sanders when it came down to one-on-one. Uh, and now he's passed all these huge bills despite having no margin uh, at all in the Senate and a five-vote margin in the House. What more can the guy do to prove that he's formidable? Um, yes, he has some verbal tics, but I mean, my God, he has been an unbelievably effective and very moderate leader. So uh, I think both the press and no labels and all of his critics are once again massively underestimating him. And by the way, he also put together the strongest NATO alliance in 70 years exactly. and is now expanding a NATO. So you can't even hold him uh, for up for failure uh, on that one. So I have a little theory about that. Maybe we'll end with that. And that is, you know, reporters, columnists like people just like them. They like people who are super articulate, like people who are kind of cool, who know all the cultural references, are of their age group. That is not Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not of the 30-something generation. He doesn't pretend he is. The irony, of course, is that Donald Trump is even more out of it in more ways than one than uh, than Biden. But I think a lot of this is kind of cultural, that they want someone cooler. And, you know, as I would say to the No Labels people and our audience— yeah, everyone would like, you know, JFK to rise from the grave or Abraham Lincoln to rise from the grave. But you go into election with the presidential candidates you have, and Biden's a pretty good one. So uh, those of you out there who are considering no labels, I would say think again. And Matt Bennett, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us. You're always so much fun to talk to. And we still agree on a lot. We do. Thank you for having me, Jen. And that is Matt Bennett, a good friend and a really, really smart guy. Thank you for joining me for another conversation with the best and the brightest in the political world. There are many more to come. Remember, tell your friends and to keep up with the show every week, follow Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give the show a five-star review. It really does help others to find us. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>